You're supposed to be working on that essay or studying for that exam. But here you are again, scrolling through Facebook. There's an argument in the comments section of your friend's post. There's more cute animal videos than you can ever watch. You pass by the same memes over and over again and just want something new. Well, we might just have what you're looking for. Check us out on our Facebook page at 933CFMU to be the first to see updates on our latest content. So if you're not gonna bother studying, spend some Facebook time scrolling on our page. Feel overwhelmed when you read research papers? Think research is being conducted in labs far, far away? Well, tune into the Almanac Thursdays from 12 to 12.30 p.m. where we interview McMaster graduate students about their research. You learn about important research that's happening right on campus. Learn about what the guests did before research, how they got involved in academia, and what kind of impact their research can have on you. The Alamac is covering it all from Thursday 12 to 12.30 p.m. on 93.3 CFMU, redefining radio in your community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Almamac. This is your host, Adam Forte, and I'm with everyone today. Yeah. Yay. We found, uh, we found Sean. Yay. I he was, was a very hey. busy guy. Um, before we start, I'd like to uh, recognize that we're recording on the traditional territory shared between the Haudenosh uh, Haudenosaunee, Haudenosaunee. Confe thank you. Confederacy and the Anishinaabe nations, which was acknowledged in the Dish with One Spoon wampum belt. So, today, special day. Yeah. Pre-recorded day. Yeah, we're going to try this out for the first time, aren't we? Okay, so I'm going to try to set this up while you two can vamp. Just fill, fill some space, if you don't mind. Okay. So, Sean, you've been away for a little while. Where yeah. have you been? I had a committee meeting last week. Oh. Sorry, yesterday. <laughs> so I was preparing for that last yeah. week. Yeah. So what is a committee meeting, for so, those who don't know? Right. So every year um, you meet with the experts, so professors in your field, and they basically say, you're on the right track or you're not on the right track. This is where you're going great. This is where you're not going great. Um, thankfully for me, surprisingly for me, they were like, well, you're doing great. These are just a few little things you could do, but yay, let's get you defended and out of here next year. Okay, good. So... That sounds like a very wholehearted yay, but yeah. uh, <laughs> you must be really relaxed now, or like yeah. you've calmed down now. Yeah, for sure, for it's, sure. It can be stressful. I heard the best defense is a good offense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to apply that to your situation. You but come in with all the literature and just start hitting people with it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so our pre-recorded uh, interview today is with Dr. Joe Kim. This is uh, the guy I sort of mentioned last week. So he's organizing a psychology of learning uh, conference. It starts today. Yeah. Uh, there's a public lecture that we talk about. That's today. It's at 6.30. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I guess maybe without further ado, let me just, let me just hit play. About myths about education. Yeah. And this was like the first slide. And people said, wait a second, you're saying there's no data at all. And I said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Goes, but there must be some studies that show that it's true. And I said, great. I'd love for you to send me these studies. There must I'll, be. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to read them. Hello and welcome to Random Walk Number One, a podcast about art, science, and anything else I stumble upon. I'm your host, Adam. 
Have you ever encountered an idea that was too appealing, seemed too correct to be false? Maybe you heard it, it made sense to you, and you never really thought to question it. I recently learned that dogs can sweat, they do it through their paws. You might not think so, because a lot of their cooling is done through their tongue with all that panting, but they do sweat. A more ridiculous one, maybe you've heard that if you were to place a frog in a boiling pot of water, it would jump out to safety, but bring it to a boil slowly, and it'll stay in until it dies. It's a nice metaphor, but it's also not true. How about that your brain is divided into left and right sides, responsible for creativity and analytical thought? Better yet, what about this right. one? So, depending on what you're learning, there's certainly uh, appropriate teaching methods that would match up with it. But to universally say that you are an auditory learner or you are a musical learner, and if you match up those teaching methods, uh, you'll perform better. There's no uh, data to back that up. That voice you heard was Dr. Joe Kim. He's an associate professor in the psychology department at McMaster University, and well, I'll let him tell you what he does. So you're an associate professor? You've been here for some time? Uh, now, since or? 2007. Okay. Yeah. And I'm a applied cognitive psychologist. Okay. So what that means is that I'm really interested in studying um, how the mind works. So mm-hmm. attention, memory, learning... Uh, executive function, working memory, all these things that cognitive psychologists are very interested in trying to figure out uh, models for how the mind works. <laughs> but ultimately, I'm most interested in translating that research into the real like world. One of the things that I'm kind of tired of talking about, <laughs> it still comes up in me every day, is like learning styles. Right. So yeah. you've heard of learning styles? Uh, right. Some people are good at you know listening to lectures. Auditory, are... visual, kinesthetic, right. musical. Just these very clear dozens, buckets. That there's dozens in. of learning styles that have been identified. Mm-hmm. And you know when I ask my class, have you been tested for your preferred learning style? Half the people say yeah. And in fact, it's a multi-million dollar industry. Psychometric testing for learning styles. And the strong version of learning styles hypothesis is that you can diagnose someone for what type of their uh, preferred learning style they have and then you match mm-hmm. teaching to that learning style and that should lead to improved academic performance but there's absolutely zero data <laughs> that backs up this idea it's got strong intuitive appeal oh and yeah. it sounds like you know this could be egalitarian like well everyone could be an a student if we just matched up their learning style mm-hmm. to the teaching style but there's no evidence to actually back this up so you might be wondering, where did this idea come from? People, I mean, don't just pluck these ideas out of thin air and just... Interesting. So where but, did the learning style concept come so from? So it's sort of... Uh, so it's based on uh, a theory of multiple intelligences by Howard Gardner. Okay. Um, and Gardner himself has distanced himself from learning styles. <laughs> he, he, he'll, he'll say, I, that's not what I'm saying. Right. That's what... <laughs> this whole other school of people have come up with, but that's not what I'm advocating. So he had a theory of intelligence that was sort of the foundation for this, uh, right. and then people just kind of ran away with this idea. And it's so well ingrained that people just assume that it's all been worked out, and this is the way it is. So I looked into Gardner and his theory of multiple intelligences, and it essentially says that different abilities require an aptitude for different things. So these intelligences roughly correspond to musical, visual, verbal, logical, bodily, interpersonal, intrapersonal, naturalistic, and as of 2009, existential. 
This may seem obvious, how could it possibly be wrong? I mean, a Wayne Gretzky who is a genius with a hockey stick won't necessarily have the aptitude to be a famous painter or public speaker. But this isn't what the learning styles concept claims. What Kim is saying is there's no solid evidence that supports the idea that by presenting material to an individual according to their strengths, they'll learn it better. As Dr. Kim explained to me, if you want to learn to hit a fastball, you can do as much reading about it as you'd like, but eventually you're going to have to get up to the plate. So I decided to dig into the claims supporting the learning styles concept, and I kept running into this name, Dr. Richard Felder. So I looked into this guy, and he's a professor emeritus of chemical engineering at North Carolina State University. And the strongest support I've seen him give learning styles is, quote, both logic and published research suggest that students taught in a manner matched to their learning style preferences tend to learn more than students taught in a highly mismatched manner. It doesn't follow, however, that matching instruction to fit students' learning styles is the optimal way to teach. And most importantly, it is wrong and arguably unethical to give students career or even curriculum recommendations based on their learning styles. Alright, so if we're not using evidence to inform our education practices, what are we doing? The way that um, most educational practices operate, uh, I don't know how surprised you'd be, but uh, it's mainly based on, I'd say, tradition, intuition, uh, and not really necessarily evidence. Mm -hmm. So I gave this talk once where um, uh, I showed this ad for this medical school that was uh, branding themselves as, ha uh, as practicing evidence-based practices in medicine. And it was, it was meant to list a laugh, and everyone kind of laughed, because mm -hmm. the joke was, if you weren't using evidence-based approaches to medicine before, what were you doing? Okay, but to be fair, medicine is very, very hard. I'm reading from Wikipedia now. Although evidence-based medicine is regarded as the gold standard of clinical practice, there are a number of limitations and criticisms to its use. Uh, for example, to be truly evidence-based, you're going to need lots and lots of data. And this requires you to sort of average over individual patients. So what might work for the medical average might not work for individuals. Right. right. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, hundreds of years ago, Medicine was, you know, mainly based on intuition, right. tradition, biases, mm -hmm. beliefs that had nothing to do with actual scientific practice. Of course, I think most people would say, of course, we should have evidence-based practice to educate uh, to medicine. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, when I turned the question around to the people in the audience and say, "Are you using evidence-based practices in your teaching?" Dead <laughs> silence, because people kind of think, well. Teaching's different, you know. Right. We don't really, I mean, I know what's best. Well, that's exactly what <laughs> physicians probably said. Like, I kind of know what's best, mm -hmm. right? So there's a real need for uh, a scientific evidence-based approach to teaching and learning. And there's a lot that cognitive psychologists know. Okay, okay, sure. Maybe teaching to learning styles is not ideal, but does it really matter? Go home and type in learning styles on Google, and you'll come across all these articles right, uh, right. espousing it. Um, and why it's a problem is that um, 
think about the limited resources and budget of any system, including <laughs> education, and imagine you're devoting uh, a chunk of your resources to something that has no evidence behind it. That means other things that it could have been invested in are not going to get uh, that attention. Right. And, um, you know, people who go through teacher's college, they have little to no exposure at all about the cognitive architecture of how their students are actually learning. Right. Right. So one of the big things I would be interested in doing is helping, um, you know, curriculum change come to even teachers' colleges so that they mm -hmm. learn some basics about here's how people actually learn. Mm -hmm. Now build your teaching and lesson plans around these limitations and these uh, abilities. Okay, so this is a noble cause, but how does somebody actually affect change in the curriculum? Maybe you live in Ontario, like I do, and have been following the back-to-basics math curriculum that the Ford government just kind of, well, handed us. Or how they're sending health classes back to 1998. You might be wondering, who gets to make these decisions? To quote Ontario's Ministry of Education website, the curriculum is revised cyclically in consultation with curriculum developers, parents, teachers, and other interested parties. A full revision cycle takes about nine years, with different components of the curriculum updated every year. The curriculum is currently being updated, and a new version is expected to be released in 2020. The Ontario Ministry of Education provides sample activities and rubrics for instruction that match the curriculum by grade level and by subject to enable teachers to incorporate activities and assessments in their instruction that are directly aligned with the curriculum goals. So to answer the question, politicians? Uh, I'm a strong believer in uh, uh, having like knowledge translation Mm -hmm. type outreach things like that's why I organized the annual EdCog conference okay. and this is a conference aimed uh, not just at researchers but educators policy makers so it's a really interesting group of people that come together that okay. don't normally get a chance right to and there's a, uh, a public lecture yeah there's a public um, lecture on the first night uh, so another really interesting wrinkle on all of this is that say you have evidence for the best practices mm -hmm. for what you should do uh, another variable that you have to think about is motivation. So if you can't actually get someone to do the exercises, mm -hmm. they're probably not going to get into shape, right? Yeah. So motivation is this kind of ignored part that's very important to learning as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, David Miele's, uh talk is titled Beliefs About the Nature of Ability and Effort, Their Role in Learning, Parenting, and Teaching. So he talks about the motivation side, the social psychology yeah. aspects of it. And I'm, I'm really excited to have it because that's a new area of research for me. I'm really, I've been most interested in the cognitive mechanisms, like what is the best thing to do? Yeah. Uh, and he's interested in, not only do we have to know the best things to do, how do we motivate people? So I read the abstract for this talk and the gist is this. Dr. Meal splits motivation into two parts, quantity and quality. Quantity is how motivated you are. So, are you extremely motivated to get that podcast edited and posted? Quality is more about where your motivation comes from. If you're motivated by an external source, you might think, Oh, I really need to impress my boss with a good report before I work on this podcast. It can be a lot different from intrinsic motivation, where you may be thinking, I'm so excited to put together this first podcast. 
And this is extremely important to Dr. Kim when he's designing his courses. Mm -hmm. Right. So, for example, um, I teach introductory psychology, and sort of my overarching motivation that I try to impart on the entire class is um, you're not just learning random facts in this course. This is the most practical course you will ever take in your life <laughs> because everything that you learn here will make you see the world completely differently. It's almost like, like remember the movie The Matrix? Ah, uh, yes. Like, Do you want to see what the world really looks like? <laughs> mm -hmm. Are you ready? <laughs> and that's what this course is about. Right, you probably and, hand select. Yeah, and it gets them very excited because at the end of the day, every lecture, they see, oh, uh, that why are we learning about this? Because it shows us how to solve this problem in the real world. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I find that students really love that. They love that they're not just jumping through hoops and memorizing random facts. That, yeah. no, there's a real purpose to this. Mm -hmm. Understanding this will help you understand why you do these behaviors. Why do you spiral into these bad habits? And how can you actually change that? How can you actually study better? So mm -hmm. I build into the course all the research that we do. And I even explain, that's why we have weekly quiz. That's why we have in, uh, high fre uh, frequent low stakes testing instead of infrequent high stakes testing in this course because it builds in retrieval practice it builds in the habits right. and i show them the data that shows look when students do it this way this is the grade they end up when they do it this way this is the grade that end up mm -hmm. if you work on a collaborative test it depends on what your role in the group is because all year long if you work in a group no surprise your marks are going to be higher right than a person working individually but your role in the group uh, are you an active participant? Or are you just sitting back and say, someone say, oh, the answer is D. Mm -hmm. uh, that has a huge impact on the final exam when you are tested alone, right? So I show them the data that, yeah, you, you can be propped up all year long yeah. artificially and even convince yourself that, yeah, I know what I'm doing mm -hmm. or I would know that. So there's, there's a concept called metacognition, judgments about your own learning, mm -hmm. and hum, humans are notoriously bad at it. You're, you, you're not using the correct information and data to make an actual accurate judgment. Mm -hmm. So you fool yourself all year long that, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not participating that much, but I would have gotten that answer anyway if I just try a little bit harder. I and then totally understand they that. fail <laughs> on the final exam. So yeah. I show them the data at the beginning of the year and say, look, I'm not naive. Like, I, these are online quizzes. Of course you could work them in, uh, in yep. groups. And I, and I even say, there's a lot of benefits from working in groups. Like arguing with someone about what the correct answer is, <laughs> is a great learning exercise. Um, and then I say, but just be careful that yeah. you actually are participating and actively learning because it will come back to bite you. Uh, right at the end that sounds like it really lines up with um with the second part of the whole motivation uh structure that that david is mm -hmm. describing it seems like normal courses are designed to motivate you based on like i need to get this mark i have mm -hmm. this, this i'm learning yeah, i think that's a mistake i think that's a real mistake in uh traditional uh courses um mm -hmm. i think showing people the applications really excites people and yeah. really shows people that even if I'm just taking this as an elective, 
there's a reason there's a reason for me to invest in this mm -hmm. so the introductory psychology course it has a reputation as being uh, a challenging course it's not a bird course right uh, you have to actually really study and put in the work but the the overall feeling i think that people pass on to other people is that but it's worth it yeah, there's an it internal was worth, motivation. It was there. actually worth learning all that stuff because now I can see, oh, I get a hunger pang at 12. That's just classical conditioning. <laughs> uh, and these cues are triggering this. Yeah, the old um, hunger pain after leaving yeah, the bar. <laughs> it's easy to give up smoking when you're on vacation because the cues that trigger the onset of nicotine are, are absent when you're on vacation. I actually know somebody who took Dr. Kim's course, and what he says is pretty accurate. In fact, let me read you some reviews from RateMyProf.com. The man, the myth, the legend. Psych is easily the best designed course for first years. Even the tutorials are interesting. Lectures are fun and engaging, and Dr. Kim is very clear. Online modules are actually helpful. He has very accessible office hours as well. 10 out of 10 would recommend taking a class taught by Dr. Kim. This is an incredibly structured course and is very interesting. It is difficult to grasp all concepts, however, there are lots of opportunities for extra credit. Dr. Kim is easily one of the best professors and truly cares about his students and their education. I definitely recommend taking a course with him. And well, okay, I couldn't help it. I just have to read a bad review. Modules are not easy to follow, so you must read the textbook and actually, all in capitals, study for the quizzes if you want a good grade. Not an easy course to get a 12, so if it's your elective, don't take it. Don't was also all in capitals. The conference that Dr. Joe Kim curates is called the McMaster Conference on Education and Cognition. It's a two-day conference on July 18th and 19th at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, where some of the top education and cognition researchers from around the world will meet along with teachers and policymakers to explore how cognitive principles can inform instruction and course design. If you're keen on attending, you can register at edcogmcmaster.com. There's a fee. But if you'd like to attend the public lecture by David Meal, the motivation guy, remember, you can come for free. He's speaking on July 18th at 6.30, followed by a public reception. I know Dr. Kim will be there, and I certainly will too. If you can make it, I definitely recommend it. And if you do, come say hi. Alright, well that's it for this week. I really want to thank Dr. Joe Kim for taking time to talk to me, and I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe in whatever podcast app you use, and leave a rating. You can also listen to me and my friends Sean and Matt live on the Alma Mac, a radio show hosted by 93.3 CFMU. It's about research that goes on at McMaster University by grad students. It's on every Thursday at noon at cfmu.ca. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam Forte, A-D-A-M-F-O-R-T-A-I-S, or at www.forte.com. Thanks again, and talk to you soon.
Actually, one last thing. Do you want to hear how every single meeting between a student and a prof ends? Here. Yeah, All thanks right. so much. Good meeting you. Yeah, nice meeting you. Door open. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh my God, that is so true. Uh, door, 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 open or cl closed, or or open. Uh, whatever you decide. Uh, and then you just leave the room. Yeah. Sometimes you leave overjoyed, other times you leave. Yeah, just head sunk. Like, what? Yeah, <laughs> like you can enter, you know, thinking that you know stuff, and then you leave, mm -hmm. and you're like, uh, more confused than when you entered, or. Uh, uh, that's the life of a grad student. Yeah. Yay. And, like, that's that wasn't even his supervisor. Yeah. Like, sometimes you have to have those exact meetings with your with your supervisor, and you're just sort of like, hey, I know stuff. They're like, no. no. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, that's, I guess, all the time we have. So here okay. we come. Bye. <laughs> Get lit. Here we go.